Welcome to MicroCollege. This week on the podcast, we're very excited to have as our guest, uh, Jill Nephew, who is, you know, in the wonder of our times, is a person that I first became aware of maybe a couple of months ago um, through a podcast, through the Emerge podcast, um, and, and then a couple of weeks ago encountered in a, in a meeting uh, online with, with a group of other people, and now here we are talking. It's amazing that this is the time that we live in. Yes. <laughs> Um, Jill is speaking to us from from, from uh, Bay Area, California. Um, she's in the software world. Um, she also has a background in physics and meteorology. Um, and she's the founder of a, a public benefit corporation called Inquire.io, um, which will allow her to explain in, in due time here. So thank you so much for, for joining us, Jill. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, so we're speaking to you today. Um, this is being recorded on on Halloween, uh, 2023. Um, and uh, if we think about the year of 2023, something that is frightening to many people here on Halloween has been, or and inspiring and exciting, has been art artificial intelligence. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I was interested in speaking with Jill was um, some of her insights about about AI and about software technology, and in particular the ways that it is uh, interacting with our sense-making capabilities, ways of developing and interacting with ourselves and our world and with our fellow human beings, um, which is seems an urgent topic for, for anyone interested in education and indeed in being a human being in these times. So really um, excited to have an opportunity to, to go deep with a person who's thinking deeply about this today. Yeah, likewise, I, I there's so much to say about the overlap with education. So I really welcome this opportunity to unpack that uh, as long as, as well as many other topics <laughs> that we overlap in. Yeah. So Jill, uh, you said you listened to a few of the podcast, the micro college podcast episodes. So you'll know that um, we generally begin with people's biographies. So um, I want to invite you to think back to when you were 18, 19, 20 years old um, sort of the age of, of most of the, the young people we're working with here at Thoreau College. Um, and I wonder if you could share um, where you were, what you were doing, and what were the big influences on your, your developing sense of, of yourself during that time period? It, yeah, this is a great question. And it's kind of hits the crosshairs of um, my own personal overlap with what I hear people speaking to in, in all these movements. Um, I think I'm a little bit of a poster child for a lot of the people that, you know, had I known about some of these things, um, I probably, they didn't hit my radar, but I probably would have been seeking them out actively had I known at that age. So uh, my background was very weird with school. I'm, I'm obviously a bit uh, off in my, uneven in my capabilities. Like I skipped a grade and then I, I flunked out of everything and then I uh, went on a home study and then I dropped out. Uh, did a bunch of labor jobs. I decided my mom thought it'd be good for me to do a bunch of labor jobs. So I, I entered the workforce full-time at 15, was working part-time at 13, uh, illegally, <laughs> fake <laughs> social security number. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, uh, uh, you know, by the time I was 16, I was having leadership roles um, in, in the workplace. I was a line manager and restaurant manager uh, by the time I was 17, 18. Um, Meantime, in parallel universe, I, I tried community college at 16, flunked out uh, to F's and everything, couldn't get myself to to do it. Um, and, uh, uh, and and the conditions of my dropping out of high school as well were a bit uh, messed up because this is a kind of a, um, a failure of 
of the busing program. So I was in a poor neighborhood, bust into a college prep school neighborhood um, or a college prep neighborhood. And uh, I didn't dress like the other kids and I had migraines and um, uh, my teachers actually kind of uh, merged those two together into kind of putting me in that that mess up, that uh, uh, intentional screw up category. So even though I was the top performing person in my science classes, and <laughs> I actually got locked out, kicked out of my classes when I had migraines for not focusing. And, and uh, it was kind of surreal, actually. Like when I replay what those teachers said to me and did to me, I thought I was almost imagining it until I met other people that were in the classroom that later in community college that said, oh, no, I was there. They really said those things. And I was like, wow, I, that was really a huge fail of um, stereotype, you know, even though I'm, you know, not typically a demographic you would think would have stereoty stereotype problems. It was definitely a stereotype, subcultural stereotype problem. Um, so I was reluctant to leave, but I was kind of getting undermined at every turn. And my mom talked me into it, uh, into leaving, saying you just go to the community college. Uh, so, um, so there I was, we haven't even hit 18 or 19 yet, but I was very interested in personal development. It was such a, since a young age, I felt a strong drive to understand, um, you know, uh, my father kind of answered all the big questions for me is at a very young, young age, like you, in, maybe infant toddler, even, I don't know how I did this, but I was pondering really deep questions about life and what I should be doing with life. And, and I kept waiting for this magical, you know, time when everyone's going to sit down and we're going to talk about the big stuff like you got much not much time here what should we be doing you know and that wasn't happening and i i just couldn't understand why that wasn't happening like it was just a recurring theme so i was actively attending every church i could find even though not you know i wasn't raised religious but i was just trying to find where these conversations happening where are people talking about this and uh, then i found myself at the spiritual section of the used bookstore and just consuming all the different world religions and uh and then i was in a kind of spiritual school for lack of a better word um area in northern california where there's all over the place so i got to survey a bunch of them and i, I ended up landing on a gurdjieff school um a very gentle one um and that might be fun to kind of unpack for nerds on uh you know what what is that mo developmental model because the, yeah, the way uh, the way i understood that developmental model was that it was higher degrees of reason of which you're developing your conscience. So you're you're learning how to consider larger and larger spheres until eventually you feel in service. Somehow you feel so connected, you feel in true service to kind of this very abstract concept you have formulated through your development of what's kind of all and everything. Um, and so it's kind of a um, self-study, you know, you're studying yourself, you're trying to learn from yourself, you're trying to learn from life quite actively. Um, and that was kind of the... Are you using yeah. the Enneagram? I know that that comes out of the Gurdjieff. No, thing. no, we were. So one thing about the Gurdjieff work, so I'll give a little crash course for people. Um, he came over, it's a, he was trying to kind of, uh, maybe almost like a first new age thing, bring bring a lot of the esoteric ideas from the East, but uh, tune them for Western audiences. So he was considered himself a living tradition where he's a living teacher. You know, it's, it's something that was transmitted to him through being in contact with other people demonstrating things. So it's a little less voodoo, I think, than a lot of the transmission stuff. It's kind of like you're, it's understood you're there to kind of study and observe somebody and catch them like in every moment, like how do they handle this scenario? How do they handle that scenario? So you're really like studying your teacher to see who is this person? Is this someone I want to, um, uh, that I, do I really take them as an exemplar? Um, and that was my idea. I really wanted to see, do I take these people as exemplars? Um, and then the idea is to innovate, continue to innovate against your current culture to try to uh, in, in, in engage this kind of development. And he's very mysterious on what the end game is, but he actually, uh, in some of what people consider his most kind of true writing, where, where he tries to keep things kind of obscure because he really wants people to question everything. 
um, he kind of alludes to ultimately it's about becoming a good Christian. That'd be your ultimate aim, which is, uh, which is being to truly learn how to love your neighbor, you know? So it's really, it's about this character development and what, what would it, you obviously, you know, every time you have this kind of inability to love that's that you take that on as a personal shortcoming of your, you know, uh, a lack of understanding that you must not be seeing things quite right here because, you know, this is not created to not be loved anyway. So, so yeah, it's an interesting, um, uh, interesting thing to study in its own right because people can be innovative. It brought in all the cult problems and all the cult leader problems. And it's got some of the worst transgressions and it's often like you'd feel they want to mention it because it got really wacky. Yeah. Um, our school is incredibly lovely and tame and wonderful. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts on cults um, because our school um, was so known for being kind of calm and gentle and 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 safe um that we got kind of a lot of refugees from <laughs> that have been that still wanted some sort of connection to the people with the, that hold those intentions but and but this is they were looking for a safe place to kind of dip in so we had a lot of kind of friends of the school that would want to kind of show up every now and again and just feel like they still kind of had that we're around that vibe in a safe way and then the fellows running it the three kind of seniors in command um perhaps not surprisingly um one was a, a well-respected lawyer, even served as a judge locally. Um, one was a PhD, you know, a PhD anthropologist at Cal, and the other one is a physics guy doing, you know. So they're all um, highly educated in traditional, you know, um, fields and working in traditional fields. And this was kind of um, an extension of kind of their public works in the world. And they did it very much like, not you know, just it was always a small group and not looking to grow outrageously, just kind of like a. a uh, service to the community and and has grown into more and more of that just like very open service to the community kind of presence that same group so um so i think i i'm really happy how i chose that so that was my i really deep participation in that by the time i was 19 since that's the age found him at 18 it was completely involved deeply involved with that um and then at 19 is where i gave community college another shot with a one and a half unit art class which I could get, I could squeeze a B out of. That's how much school I could handle. <laughs> I just really didn't like being told what to do. I <laughs> I really didn't like homework. And uh, the community college system allowed me to keep kind of poking at that. And then by the time I was 24, I had done a complete 180. I transferred to Santa Cruz and we could talk about Santa Cruz because that's another interesting parallel there. Yeah. Chose Santa Cruz. I ended up studying physics. And because all these choices were really my own agency at each step, and I, by the time I was at Santa Cruz, um, I was maxing out my units. I was doing independent studies every semester. Um, I graduated with enough units for two bachelor's degrees. And a group of us even started an informal undergraduate colloquium where we, ch we chose topics that weren't represented at Santa Cruz. We could find a library, attempt to teach ourselves and teach each other for no credit. Um, so I was a complete education nerd uh, by, by the time I was 24. <laughs> I was all in. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that, and then as a lot of people know, graduate school, I, I picked two very small programs. Uh, so my cohort is like seven or eight people, which is also interesting to me. So like there's some, that, that that's how a lot of graduate programs work. You get this really tiny cohort um, that you go through these years with. So, um, so yeah. And so I have a lot of reflections about um, which we, I'm sure, hope we get into. Um, we, I know we want to talk about AI and everything, but I, I found so many amazing um Cool things that lit up as I was um, doing this deep dive into your world and all and and all the great episodes you recommend I listen to and then uh, Lean's work, learning more about Lean's work specifically. Yeah, so I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that that's fascinating. I think in in your bio, I don't I don't often do this, but 
maybe you know there's something between the half the like one art class at community college to you know majoring in physics and university right there it's like the the uh the old Gary Larson cartoon about, you know, where here a miracle occurred here, something important. Right. <laughs> oh, there is a miracle occurred moment, actually. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about that. I mean, I, I could talk about this stuff all day long. There's so many fun things that, because I've, well, I've been really curious about education. I've had such a, it, it, yeah, it hasn't been a smooth, there's nothing smooth about me in education. It's always been like peaks to valleys. <laughs> um, so that, that there's the moment, there's two that happened around the same time. One was I was doing my lower division physics class and mechanics um, at McKinney College. Uh, I thought I wanted to go into some kind of engineering. I didn't know it was physics yet. And um, and we were studying the usual uh, longitudinal and transverse waves, just like everyone does. And then we had this slinky to study longitudinal waves. And I just asked my teacher, well, what about just, I could do this with a slinky. I can make a slinky go up and down. What about studying longitudinal waves and uh, you know transverse waves simultaneously using springs? And she said, oh, I don't think anyone's tried to model that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that was the first time I heard that scientists didn't know everything. Mm. And then the next bait was like, well, you could try. So I did a little independent study, which by the way, I should say also my community college, the way I had to get through it coming from, I think this uh, other training and my own agency was I had to strike deals with a lot of professors. Like I couldn't do multiple choice exams. Uh, uh, I just, my brain would turn off. I couldn't do rote thinking. Um, and so, um, uh, like for instance, I had a history class and I knew history was gonna be the hard one for me. So instead of doing like a bunch of tiny papers, I asked if I could do one massive paper. So I read 800 pages of Aaron Burr's memoirs and read like a 20 page paper on Aaron Burr. Just let me just do something that gets me, that I feel, and, and but I'll do a lot of work for you if you let me follow my own curiosity, basically. And at the community college, those professors let me do that which was wonderful. Like I, I managed to find a way to light myself up, you know, in all the um, general ed classes I had to take. Uh, and this is a really kind of um, uh, snarky one, but to get through Psych 1A, I couldn't strike a deal. So I was taking critical thinking at the same time. And so I gave myself the task of cutting up my Psych 1A textbook and using it for every critical thinking homework assignment <laughs> to find examples of bad thinking and pass the class in critical thinking <laughs> as examples. So, was, so that's kind of how I, you know, I had to find something where I, you know, I was kind of a troubled child that way. But yeah, so I went off and I tried to solve the transverse longitudinal wave thing. And, um, and that's where I would go to my professor. I'm like, okay, what do I do here with the math? And she's like, oh, there is no math for that. And I'm like, what? You know, so it's like, oh, I've, I somehow, my community college found the bleeding edge of math and physics. And often you have to go much deeper into an education for you realize that you're, there is an edge to what we know and appreciate what it looks like, the excitement of looking over that chasm. And that's where I didn't know I'd fall in love with physics. Um, so the other magical moment was waiting for my, um, my appointment with my uh, career counsel counselor at the community college, and they have these uh, back then these turnstiles with like the transfer um, what you have to, what classes you have to take for different majors. And so I was just spinning that thing around. I think I had a head cold, and I'm just like kind of delirious. I'm spinning that thing around, waiting. And it's late, and I'm looking, and the thing just stops. And it spins. It's like really a roulette, and it just stops right in front of my eyes. And I just look first at the bold thing where it's like the prerequisites, like physics, 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 math, math, math. And I'm like, what kind of engineering is this? <laughs> and it's like, it's a physics major. And I'm like, okay, that's it. This is all I want to take is math and physics. Just do it. Be a physics major. Cause I had a very much a pragmatic barrier against just going for it. So I later 
found out that it was it's okay you can have a little fun with your <laughs> in college you can study physics so th those two kind of um those two helped a lot and then um another thing was how i picked my community how i picked my college is that i i did a visiting thing um and even without any ideology or i think it speaks a lot to um Don Murphy's idea of like where I, I really resonate. There's a ton of emergence. Like I'm sensing into something here, what I want for my education. And I studied one physics program and a professor used the words like they were just a B student. And I thought, I don't want to go to any university that says that about students. Like I just had this aversion and I went and visited Santa Cruz and, um, and I only visited Santa Cruz because it was nearby where I grew up. I wasn't going to take it seriously. It wasn't a serious school. Um, and, uh, then they they gave me two pieces of information. One, they said they're at the top at the time. They might still be in undergraduate research. Um, so there we go. I could think from, do all my thinking for myself I want. And they had an open door policy where they said um, in the department, you can um, interrupt any professor anytime with any question. And uh, and that was their policy. Are you yeah. good? Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so um, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And that, that ended up being... Um, True. They, they, that I had a wonderful experience at Santa Cruz. Um, not only that, I, I know this is come up too, but the, while I was there, they moved buildings. They eventually had to give up this building, but they moved buildings to a building that was specifically designed for teacher a student interaction per hall. And the administrators took it over because it's the best building and put it in this <laughs> like hallway building. And when they moved to this Kerr Hall, the physicists fought to keep it. I was with them. We had all had a movement to try to keep this building. There was so much cross-germination of ideas because um, people were just hanging out in these public spaces. And literally one day, uh, you know, a professor comes by and says, do you have a minute? And he says, I just want to explain my ideas to somebody. He pulls me in his office and he just starts, <laughs> and I can't follow any of it, but he, he's using me as like a sounding board as an undergrad. And I just thought this is just thrilling. You know, I'm trying to keep up here. Um, and that was a really big deal. And then for people who don't know, you know, in a good program, uh, you know, even at Santa Cruz and like good by this criteria um, where the professors are supported and being open. Um, I I actually did at one point, um, you know, we, we marched through topics in physics in order so that you can kind of grasp one. It's very layered. And we got to one topic and I went to my, my professor's um, office hour and I said, this is wrong. Um, you know, this is can't be right. And, and, uh, and then, you know, you just get hand the chalk, you don't get like shut down. And then I worked my way through it. And I said, here's, here's what I want to prove. Here's what I'm proving to you. It's wrong. And then he said, yeah, you know, we were going to cover that in a couple of weeks, you know? So yeah, you're right. And Einstein recognized that too. Cause it turned out the guy who was saying it was wrong as Einstein. He's like, yeah, Einstein knew he was wrong too. That's why in two weeks we're gonna learn about this next thing he figured out. So you kind of get this interesting way to kind of play along and, you know, and rehearse and practice. Like how did people that really Come up with these ideas think through these ideas like, like there's a way i was able to squeak that out of a classical um traditional education as well so mm -hmm. so i feel like in a lot of ways i've been trying to kind of make make myself get a might, might be closer to a micro college <laughs> <laughs> you know education yeah. uh, without knowing they existed well thank you thank you for sharing that that, that background i mean i think um a couple of things that stand out there that are related to to all of our, our work here is I can't tell you how many of the people that I've interviewed, especially those who are founders of, of new programs, or I think also probably people working in, in education tech kind of stuff as well, are people who in some way struggled with the conventional education system, right? They, um, you know, Zach Stein, who I, I think you probably have met and talked to before, he introduced himself, yeah, I was, you know, learning disability and that's how I got into what I do and thinking about that. And, 
Um, <clears throat> so that's that makes sense. There's an impetus there to innovation and to and to for people who understand the ways that systems don't work for for whatever reason. Um, mm -hmm. But also, what stands out are these relationships and the just the individual people who who stepped out of their formal role and and had that conversation pulled you out. That was a great story. <laughs> yeah, and, and that you could also see that the design of the space was important for that too, and the in the building. So mm -hmm. yeah. beautiful. Yeah, so there's a lot of resonant points there. I get what you're going for here. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the when um, I first became aware of you and your work, um, this was a this podcast interview um, on the Emerge podcast with the very striking headline of you know, interacting with the AI, using AI, talking to AI is like eating plastic, right? right. Which was was really a vivid image and. Um, and so as I've dug into your work, you know, I think the, the other word, the kind of the top level phrase in, in your in your writing and in the, the description of, of inquire is this concept of natural intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. And which is sort of obvious. If we were talking about artificial intelligence, there must be something which is natural intelligence. But um, and I think that I really appreciate uh, going through and, 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 and learning what your perspective on what that might be. So maybe that's a place to start. If, if you know, before sure. we get into artificial intelligence, what is natural intelligence? Yeah, so, I mean, I think a lot of us struggle with how to kind of name this thing we sense into. And um, so I'll start with that kind of disclaimers. Like we're always struggling to try to name things. So why did we pick this concept to run with? There's a lot of concepts that, that have cycled through our, our work in, in, inquiry. Obviously it's in the name, um, <laughs> uh, reflection um, and, um, uh, sense-making, right? It's a very big one. Um, natural intelligence was a really important concept, um, I thought, and I really wanted to kind of put it out there because I thought it was perhaps, hopefully, the most durable to being misconstrued um, because it had already a place in um, AI research, which is basically um, just, it's a kind of operational term. It's that like every living thing somehow, you know, is a cognitive agent and somehow figures out how to negotiate its existence in its environment. Um, that's like, how it has to negotiate its interactions with everything around it. It needs to niche. It needs to feed itself. It needs to reproduce. It needs to adapt. It needs to, you know, basically, um, you know, have some model of reality that works for it. Um, and all those cognitive tasks it does it, it is, you know, natural intelligence is what. And so if you want to test if something has natural intelligence, you unplug it <laughs> forever <laughs> and you drop it into the world and you say go. And then you can check back and if it's still going, you know, uh, after some time. So you can see already there's some problems, right? Yeah, there's some problems yeah. there. Like already you have a problem of like, well, wait a minute, you can't just drop something in. And how does it suddenly, you know? Um, get all that function when it didn't co-evolve or, you know, yes. so, so there's this history problem, there's this interface problem. So it's, it speaks to something really special and every AI researcher knows it's so impossible and possibly hard. They don't even know where to begin to do it. Uh, so, so that's one reason I think it's really important. And then if you start, you know, asking what, what comes with that package, what comes with those capabilities, then you hit some mathematical, you know, um, you know, proofs really that that you can't make machines do what we do. It's not a machine-like thing that natural intelligence does. Yeah, what's striking that that's such a such a graphic and like just a, a great way to describe your idea in you know just dropping you know something into an environment. I think one of the things that I experience um, in our programs here, and you know, the, the students who come to Thoreau College and who our programs are 
often in some ways sensing that they are missing some important piece of their education that maybe they can't really put their finger on. Um, but this, what you're describing is I think a lot of it. Um, could I be set down in the woods or, or you know, indeed in adult life, right? You know, in, in, in an independent living situation, you know, in, in a job, in a, in a family, you know, with children, with a spouse, you know, um, but especially in the natural world, could I could I feed myself? Could I could I you know start a fire? You know that very concrete level of uh, of, of living in the world. And and the answer is at least initially no, right? They haven't had yeah. enough you know context, enough kind of interactions with with the world, with the with with the with the, with the with the in the natural environment to, to do that. And so um, I think I definitely think of that what you're describing there is is certainly part of what we are trying to do here. Yeah, we touched on that in that that same podcast episode, I think, with Daniel Thorson on Emerge, where we talked about, um, I think that's why we both got emotional, was that it's so felt to us, that truth, that, that having a sense of that, like, I belong and I have a place on the planet, that, we, that people don't have that, that's just so fundamentally wrong. Like, you can call it whatever you want. You can talk about the matrix of the machine or liberation or all these things, all these abstractions, but you can just feel like, like, this is our home you know, and yet it doesn't feel like our home. Um, and, it, and so somehow, you know, we got estranged from that, that sense. Yeah. It, um, and, and I think that's, that's how, right. That, that is a way it comes up, um, that we're, you know, uh, and for many of us with the collapsing social structure that we're also just kept by kind of machinery, we're kept alive almost by machinery. We're kept alive and Right. distribution networks and food and you know and people fix our houses and they set up these little environments and we just kind of exist in them um and so we don't even have like the social network that's keeping us going it's like like my friend from other culture friend from another culture his point is like in, he says it's really black and white in america you know it really is like if that system fails you you have you kind of have nothing and i think that um in other parts of the world that are closer to having a sense of place, there isn't that sense that that's possible. There's not like this single point of failure yeah. on our own existence. There's, yeah, and There's definitely a lot of anxiety around that. And I think, you yeah. know, I think one of the, the COVID pandemic and the other mm -hmm. disrupt, disruptions in our world the last few years have, have brought that anxiety closer to the surface where people are aware of how close to the edge. Yeah. We are all, and but also each individual person is, you know, and, and I started, certainly saw, um, interest in some of our programs, the folk school programs where people are learning how to, you know, grow their own food and, and build yeah. buildings and things like that. There was an uptick in that, in that moment as people mm -hmm. that was brought, brought to their, to, to consciousness. I was like, what, yeah. I'm not actually able to, to, to function if, if this apparatus kind of breaks down. Right. Right. Yeah. And so this is a lot of, um, I guess I'm circling back to the eating plastic part. Well, maybe we're not quite ready to get back there yet, but yeah, that there's a kind of, um, there's a style of thinking that's consistent with interfacing with this kind of mechanized, you know, ex what keeps us alive. And then there's a type of thinking that um, we need to, that can be blocked, that is intrinsic to us, you know, that we'd want to restore or ignite, that we may not be in the habit of using that, yeah, um, brings us into being able to do that, that uh, apply our natural intelligence, you know, do real, what I call real sense making, um, you know, into a given circumstance. And uh, and so um, the Inquire project was kind of a recognition that um, that there was something to do there to restore, like there was a sort of move that kind of had to happen 
because these things become kind of, uh, we have a lot of faith in them working. Like it, we have a lot of faith that, that that way that we think to interface with modernity, let's for sure hand works for all these other things. And you can kind of see, once you see it, you can't unsee it, like how we keep applying that same, um, you know, kind of broken thing and that there are real ways to, um, to kind of show people uh, systematically and, um, you know, um, yeah, that's a big one systematically how to kind of um, get do new moves. It's almost like a like if you had took somebody who was in a box and their body never moved, you know, and they didn't even know they had joints in certain places, you would say it's it's going to be systematic for me to like have you move through these different range of motion exercises. You can just feel what that's like. So here's so it just turned out that way that basically kind of the ways of moving, the ways of looking to kind of restore that that way and be able to be systematized. So I thought that was really important. And so everything in Inquire kind of has that in its kernel. And then there's lots of ways we kind of in enable people to do that alone with others in different contexts. Yeah. So I think yeah. a, a key concept that I'm that I've seen in your work, and there there is there's a feedback loop, right? Um this thing the idea of, of of certain content, certain you know, cultural content being consumed is you know, it builds on itself um, that, that that's, you're getting more, more artificial, you know, the more iterations right. that are happening. And, you know, I think one of the things I appreciate also is, is the, the time that you, you take in your work to, to talk historically, right? This is an issue that precedes AI, it precedes the computer, it precedes, yeah. you know, the 20th century. It goes, it is, it yeah. is it's baked into modernity in a way that, that is, ex that it seems like it's accelerating. Like where, yeah. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, I am. Here's my disclaimer. I'm like the first thing from a historian, which you kind of established earlier. <laughs> so it's kind of I, I try to represent history. And I think it, all the historians should probably just shaking their heads and all the philosophers also should, will be shaking their heads if I try to touch <laughs> on philosophy, but it, it must be done. Um, so as I understand it, um, basically uh, uh, reading on um, if people want to read into this history, if you read up on uh, Giordano Bruno and the art of truth and what was happening in the late 1500s and what was going on uh, with all these thinkers that to me were, were trying to unlock a lot of what I think inquires been working on it to me. They're trying to look for a universal calculus of reason uh, because there are hints of these things existing, which are a very similar way of doing this kind of um, uh, counterfactual reasoning, basically. They, they end up building contraptions for counterfactual reasoning that would do unsuspecting collisions that overcome the natural associations you have and that's kind of the engine of insight that was a lot compressed to a short thing but that's yes. <laughs> i'm gonna ride right over that for a minute i'm gonna bookmark that because i want to okay we're gonna bookmark that it seems like a really interesting and important concept but it's an ahead. important concept so yeah so basically these things are widespread and um in the book the art of um uh, memory by francis yates if you'll want to that'd be a fun great book to read um that's a, a lot of, that's kind of the baseline historical text i'll be pulling from then it's some deep dives um, but uh, the way that uh, she construes that that history, her hypothesis is that um, this actual movement was happening is deeply underground and responsible for um, like a lot of the um, the Enlightenment ideas, like a, a lot of the you know the revolutions we saw in culture are you know, basically just opening up imagination, which is exactly what you'd expect to happen with counterfactual reasoning, right? So. So what happened, uh, you know, is that uh, these things started becoming systematically, you know, forbidden and destroyed and rooted out and everything went underground and everything was encoded and people were trying to hide they're using them and the church was coming after them and and uh, then science started coming after them. And, and um, there's a book I read called um, uh, Western Esotericism, A Guide for the Perplexed. 
the author is, is escaping me, but I'm sure that there's only one book by that title. Um, and that also is a really lovely, uh, coming from a non-historian, historic, historical account for me of what was kind of happening then that cross cross crosses over where he's talking about there really were these moments where just one or two minds shaped all of culture. So around this time, the idea is that uh, you can see the transcripts in the Giordano Bruno accounting, where they literally were saying when he's kind of on trial of like, why would you bother with counterfactual things that are imaginary, which is madness, when you have everything you need from real data. So it was really this logical positivism faith that we're still in. We're still so data forward, it's maddening. And uh, so, you know, you see it everywhere. People cannot think from first principles. They're sure that it, we'll only know when we have the data. And that can be, you know, as as a leading data scientist, Judea Pearl, Book of Why, another great book, uh, you know, speaks to readily. You wouldn't only go to data if you, if you haven't already figured out how something works. You know, you don't need to measure the gravitational constant every time you use your bathroom scale. We know how gravity works and we use that all the time to switch our, you know, our weight to our mass. We don't measure our mass, we, you know, we would. So, so all over the place, engineering wouldn't work if there's this sort of case, right? So, so we have these, these uh, physics, you know, basically when everybody says science, it works, they're basically talking about this. There's a subset of what we know that we could apply without data. And yet we still live in this world that is kind of plagued by this um, kind of like, if you reveal one of these principles in any field, you're still often, especially in the soft sciences, in an endless uphill battle to try to lead with that. Um, so, um, so anyway, there was this uh, historical movement, um, logical positivism, the enlightenment that we're still in, and um, data's king. And then, of course, we can kind of see the extension of this now, where there's a faith or a blind faith idea that seems to be held by even our president right now, that all this promise of AI is fundamentally resting on the idea that if we had all the data, we'd have all the reasoning. And we know that's simply not true. Judea Pearl, Book of Life, and other many other sources, that's just the best one I always, like, I want to make it clear to people, like there's many people who have pointed this out over the years. Judea Pearl is just the latest, greatest version of this. Like, But there are many ways we know that you cannot get novel ideas or new ideas, or you can't, basically you can't, you can't bound all, everything's, everything's contextual. Data's not contextual. So, um, so this is kind of um, yeah, maybe maybe setting us up, starting to set us up full circle to um, why it's like eating plastic. We're kind of not quite there yet, but that's basically, that's an important pillar, which is that you cannot expect these things to do what human mind can do. And yet we're living in a time when that's almost just like considered a given that all we need to do is wait for chat GPT seven or eight and it's going to be there. Yeah. Is all the data, right? So yeah. much packed into what you said there. I know. Sorry. <laughs> and a, and, and a really a very interesting stuff. And I guess maybe if I could just restate a couple of things just for, for listeners yeah. again. I mean, so you, you started, you referenced Francis Yates, um, who for people who haven't heard that name before, Francis Yates is one of the key historians of the role of the esoteric and the occult in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, right? And people might be familiar with, with, Isaac Newton, for example, who was who is did a lot of alchemy in addition to you know maybe more of that than than uh, physics and 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 didn't distinguish between those. Um, my favorite example though would be Kepler, right? And um, Johannes Kepler was was of course really the person who figured out the motions of the solar system, um, elliptical orbits, and 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 all kinds of really 
counterintuitive kind of laws that turn out to be true and very useful. He's also an astrologer, court astrologer. But also, if you read his works, he's constantly doing this counterfactual imagination, right? right, he, right. In some case, like wrote the first kind of science fiction book, arguably, right, which was about what it would be like to be on the moon, basically. What would it look like? It's uh, called Somnium, a dream of a person on the moon. What would the solar system mm. look like? What would astrology look like from the perspective of the moon? Right. Mm -hmm. so that ability to do that imaginative work is is mm -hmm. is essential to to discovery and and for this sense making. Right. What what if that yeah. big question? What if? Right. And there's also another book, um, Adam. I have to look this one up. Maybe I can give it to you later. I'm blanking on it, but um, it's a it's a physics book by a physicist talking about kind of the state what's going on in physics and um, uh, if we are you going to be? I guess you can edit this out. Is this? I could pause and find it. <laughs> okay, I don't need to do that. Do, do you? Sure, it? we we can look it up. We'll put it in the notes. Yep. Okay, we'll put it in the notes. Okay. Yeah. So Adam's the first name, and I'm blanking on everything else. So basically, yeah. he he's pointing out that um another these um imaginative exercises by another name are thought experiments, which people probably have heard and and kind of documenting how the thought experiment has kind of been rewritten historically as not being kind of how people came to things like we there's like a retelling of uh, newton measured and he did these and he measured things and then he showed gravity it's like no no that was a thought experiment and um and how many you know einstein we were famous right the, his thought experiments and gedanken experiments so it's a celebration of those and even though we celebrate them in some contexts it's a little bit of this dissonance right we're still in where we're not understanding the power of these of thought experiments because and this is um uh um the the way we think, um, which is the Falconer and Turner um, hypothesis on uh, conceptual blending, because what natural intelligence can do, what we can do, which is not algorithmic, it's mind, it's, you know, there's, there's no way to write algorithms to do this that we know of right now, is to reliably blend together all these things in a way that we can have, uh, you know, durable insights, like we, we're, we have to do it, if you think about it, to live into the next moment like we are not experiencing what's really happening we're experiencing a model of what's happening that's continuous with what happened and it's generally right you know like we don't go whoops that, that was wrong whoops that was wrong so so we're using you know every new moment's fresh and new and it's all reconstrued based on our past lived experience that's an incredibly intense and advanced uh, uh capability we have and, and it seems almost infinite and we can talk about that's a very nerdy conversation we probably won't have um, but yeah, that 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 capability is is very much tied to natural intelligence. And with this blind spot we have, and this is what we spend a lot of time trying to educate people on, um, uh, of elevating this data first, uh, data's king model, where we're um, we're kind of hand, we're absolutely handicapping ourselves from in, in enabling this these higher level capacities. Um, they all got kind of uh, framed as unreliable. That's another historic thing that happened was the Nisbet and Wilson 1977 uh, seminal work was kind of wrong um, <laughs> about uh, strangers to ourselves and cognitive biases where that, that whole movement of how we can't know our unconscious and it's kind of a mess in there and we're just these black boxes. That that all has been reexamined and it's deeply problematic and, and it appears to be you know just not true. Those were a lot of problems in experimental setups and the way people are approaching the topic. So, um, which might eventually get us to eating plastic, but basically the, the, the researchers were inducing the problem in cognition they were measuring as they thought they thought was intrinsic. They were inducing confabulation. They were inducing people making wrong causal uh, utterances 
and then taking them as being reflective of what was going on cognitively. There's a lot of moving parts between what someone says and what you did in the experiment and how, how much that's a reflection of what's happening in them and how much you brought into their cognition. Teasing all that apart is not done very well right now in the psychological social sciences. So if you do that very carefully, you realize that what's uh, more likely an uh, you know explanation in all, all those things is that people are are inducing people to say things that don't make sense because they've narrowed their possibilities down. So to take a concrete example from that original paper, there's this famous experiment called the nylon experiment where they took um, these uh, four pairs of ladies' stockings, nylons, and put them in a quadrant uh, in a little table. And then women walked by and said, and they're all identical. And they said, which one do you like and why? Uh, um, and, uh, and so the women come by and they always pick the bottom right corner and then they come up with some nonsense answer of why. And so they said, there, you're, you, you don't even know you made up BS. You're a stranger to that. You didn't even realize you're using this nonsense algorithm. You're picking the bottom right quadrant and they're all identical. And you can't even know, you don't even notice that you're just making stuff up. You're, we're just walking around these madness machines. So that, that experiment was redone. And they said, can you explain your answer? And they said, and the answers were of this kind where the woman would say, well, clearly they're all the same and I didn't want to embarrass you. And so I just made up an answer, you know? <laughs> so this whole problem of like yeah yeah you gotta ask an open question so if you start narrowing that the possibility space down you can induce people to kind of follow these tracks and then if you do that enough they'll start to construe a world out of what they just said and what you had them think and now you're in the world of mind control you're in the world of uh, cults you're in the world of false memories you're in the world of false confessions which are very reliable right now, by the way, they can, you know, get people to confess 95%, I think, um, of people will confess to a crime they didn't commit if you use these linguistic terms and this, these ways of phrasing things. And this should all start to sound now starting to get resonant with we are knowingly interacting with imitation humans that their hallmark is that they confabulate. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, you start to see people already interacting deeply with these technologies, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're outsourcing this confabulation. They're like, well, chat GPT, you know, what does the world look like from the moon? Or like, what if this was the case? And then and then they get this pat kind of answer, right? Um, which is is generated from these algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that's, is how is that different from, from a conversation, let's say with a teacher or with a, or, you know, or, or your kind of inquiry with, with, the, with the, the phenomena of the world? Right, so, I mean, I think that, um... I think it comes right down to what uh, great therapists and great teachers and great, you know, everybody meditation teachers kind of all know, which is that as you mature and great coaches, I've heard quotes on all these domains that as you progress through your journey of getting better and better, this, you get better and better inquiry, you get better and better at recognizing that you're not there to give answers. You're there to set up the kind of cognitive, uh, setting up a good inquiry is not a simple thing. People think it's they question they're really under undervalued. It's not just a question, right? You you are trying to pull in different things. You're trying to sense where the students at. You're trying to whatever the, the other person you're acting with. You're you have to model their world. You have to model kind of the deficit. You have to model where they're getting to, and you have to like carefully pull, figure out how to pull things in that they can see that are introspectively available. Because of that introspective availability, this is Thomas Metzinger's work. Um, you can't have the engine of insight. People have insight, they see. So it's not a thinking process. So a good teacher will know how to like bring those things in. And just in the act of bringing the thing in, that might be, you know, that that can just, that will just start coming together like a, 
a puzzle. Like the brain's designed to puzzle it all together, right? It's like, look there. Ah, you know, I see, I see where I am now, right? I don't know where I am. Well, do you recognize that clock? Oh, I, you know, this is so, right. Yeah. So you don't have to necessarily, um, yeah, you don't want to give the answer. And so it's that art of, of um, putting those questions together. Um, Yeah. And then, so yeah, what's the, what's the, so somebody um, is pre-construing an answer for you. You could just look at what is that cognitive, what's happening in the mind of somebody who is just reading a, a pre-construed answer. Uh, you know, it's very nothing there is an insight process, right? All it could be is a memorization process. All it can be is authoritative. And the problem, as probably people can appreciate, um, is that what an insight process allows us to do is this miracle of how we can learn more and more and more in the world and somehow get faster and faster and faster. Like as we come, became domain experts, we become more fluid, more quick, and we can make finer distinctions. That is a paradox uh, that that our minds can do that. Um, and it's a big mystery, you know, of how memory can do that because a computer will just get all clogged up. And in theory, we should too. So, so if we have two conceptualizations that are close, but not exactly the same, there's this washout. That's how we get the tip of the tongue or we can't bring something Adam Becker. <laughs> anyway, that was the author. I'm Got sure it. from there people can find it. So, uh, you know, tip of the tongue, just like that. Something is, something washes out. You can't recall it. And um, and so in theory, as you take and learn more and more, every domain expert should just be constantly have tip of the tongue. They should just be like unable to articulate. And yet that's not the case. They become more eloquent. They become more quick. They become more compressed. So that that whole capability we have to do that requires some magical insight. So I, our hypothesis insight process really is a remodeling of the world in a simpler cleaner, more reused form. Like you, you, all those, all those model previous models adjust slightly and they accommodate your new information while not, while still accommodating your old information. And somehow you're revealing a, a, a model that has more, you know, your own model of whatever that domain looks like that has more um, utility, more applicability. And this is uh, the work of um, Wolfgang Klemesh, very, very under-referenced work. But the idea then of how we get quicker is that if you have a model you're using all over the place in order to bring things to mind by association, the more places you use a model, the more quickly, you know, all you need to do is find one association. So the more you learn, you get more associations. And as soon as you have one, you can grab the thing you're looking for. And that's what makes you more quick and fluid is that reusability. So if you're just taking an output of a data model, that's just a, one construal that's, a, you know, not integrated, not in your language in your abstractions where you've wrestled with that insight process of, turning that into what, you know, integrating it with what you already know somehow, uh, that's just hanging out there and that's going to grow, you know, exponentially. It's, that's not going to compress. That's just going to become muddy and it's become, and you're going to get slower and slower. So, um, so in terms of just, I'd love to kind of see like, yeah, the end result quality of having somebody just tell you answers versus like finding ways to have you come to them on your own. Yeah. Well, I think you can, we can get the answer to that by looking at much of education right now, right? A lot of answers. I mean, my formation as a teacher, um, a big part of it was um, was as a Waldorf teacher in the Waldorf schools and especially at the high school level. Um, one of the key things was learning how not to answer the questions, I would say, mm-hmm. right? I felt like, especially feel really at the top of my game as a teacher when I'm able to, to not answer the question. <laughs> And instead, do we say, you know, show, of course, but also like if a student is going out of the class with a bigger mystery than they went into it, 
that's a great victory yeah. right? because that yeah. is that's what leads you on to more exploration and curiosity and excitement yeah. if it's all answered right then it's done yeah. and dead right and that there's a lot of education is dead as we know right 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 yeah and i think this is um so we've kind of wanted to cross cut a bit um well i don't want i don't know if i'm taking off track here but i i have a direction i could go with this right now <laughs> go for it yeah okay okay so i mean this kind of gets into um the politics of education to me and um and i i know that um uh uh lean anderson in her book bildung which i recently uh read which was wonderful as like as expected um, pointed out something I didn't know, which is another history did bit of um, that the you know the counter argument to Bildung is what happened with the Nazis and how can you explain that? And her counter to that is that um, they made it um, you couldn't ask questions and, and remove Q and As and there's no questioning. I was also aware of um, hist another source I don't remember. Uh, I was talking about Eastern Bloc countries during the Soviet kind of overtake of that. Um, they bur removed, burned, destroyed all books on reflection. So, um, so there's very much this idea of, uh, you know, thinking for yourself is, it, you know, and of course we know what happened with everybody who worked on the art of truth, um, which was a, a uh, the, his, the fun history of that is that the first version 1300s, um, Raymond, Raymond Lull, uh, is by some considered the father of information technology. And he did this counterfactual thing out of concentric paper rings that, that, and, and he said with these things, he's a theologian. And he said, with this contraption, you should be able, anyone would be capable of uh, proving for themselves, revealing for themselves, like the entire, every theological truism, basically, like you would, everyone can do this for themselves. And he went, um, and he said, not only that, this is a, his, they would realize God is good. And so he went on a little mission to try to persuade uh, other, <laughs> the Muslims that God is good and got himself stoned to death. And then, of course, Giordano Bruno got himself killed trying to persuade the king of Spain to use this um, instead of his advisors. Instead of your advisors, you can just think for yourself, you know. So it was this um, undertaking of um, getting people to think for yourself, think for themselves, is has been explicitly, uh, you know, recognized as a threat Absolutely. multiple times throughout history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it uh, rocks the boat for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering. Um, yeah. So I think this 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 sets up. You know, you you've identified. You know, and and really immersed yourself in these big trends and these these kind of these these problems that are emerging in our in our whole civilization around education and around thinking and around our technology. And so um, I, I'm wondering if you could introduce us to Inquire um, and you know what 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 is the the vision for this and what is um, what what uh, what should people understand uh, it is that it does? Yeah, so Inquire's um, is still in in the process of uh, putting more offerings out there. So this is a little bit of kind of our, our roadmap of, if, depending on when people hear this, this might be stuff to come. It may not be uh, <laughs> there yet if you go to the site. Um, but the general idea with Inquire um, is that, uh, uh, let me see, how should I tell this little story? Um, uh, well, first off, maybe this is actually also relevant. Um, this speaks a little bit, I think, to um, uh, um, to the idea of emergence um, that was uh, uh, mentioned with, um, uh, sorry, I'm blanking, um, Don Murphy's episode with you mm -hmm. um, about, I really liked what she said about um, this idea that people were, have been feeling this missing thing. 
And so we talked about 19 and now I actually want to jump forward to uh, after, you know, I was still missing something. Like I, I was getting something and, and I don't know if I'll have time to get into this, but like, I think the spiritual context is problematic. And this actually is something I wanted to, that I really resonated with, with Lean's uh, work. And now see, of course, in our work too, which I'll speak in on a minute, Lean talks about this idea of a Bildung Rose. And I think she makes a really nice argument in the movie, in the book Bildung about uh, as a concept, how this thing kind of stops the extremes because each kind of checks, there's a tension. It's like a tensegrity to it that they check each other. And, and we really see that in our work too. So, um, so this idea of doing a, um, a kind of a character development only under the umbrella of say a wisdom tradition. I think that's what the umbrella people are using now, wisdom tradition often has problems because it it's kind of too lopsided in my mind in the, you know, uh, in that one dimension. Um, and, um, and particularly because so much of it's done kind of in a monastic or a removed setting where it's not trying to be true, truly representative of community. So it's trying to do two things at once. It has a very important role to allow refuge for people to do solitary work. Um, and, but then I think that gets a little bit mixed up and, and I know people work on this, but like the idea of what, how do we get back to the community? I know that's still, that's kind of a problem in general, right? How do you kind right. of get back to the community? So, so um that was where I was coming from. And, um, at my early thirties, um, I was, I felt pretty adrift for a number of reasons. I think just in culturation in general, <laughs> it was just like culture was getting to me. And I just felt this kind of, I couldn't find my place. Right. Even though I was doing all this work, trying so hard, I also felt like I couldn't find my place as a young person. And, um, my grandfather remarried, uh, his new wife invited me to this group. She was in her late seventies at the time of ladies that had been meeting for 15 years for this week weekend retreat run by a 94 year old Quaker. And I was the first person to be invited who's uh, under probably 65. <laughs> and I was 30 at the time, 30, 32, the first one I went for a few years. And um, this Quaker ran this format um, that was very pure in just having people speak about their direct experience, even though it's kind of a, a, the intention was to kind of heal, you know, when you're trying to heal a bunch of people that are like lifelong therapists that have been through everything imaginable uh and that are some of them in their 90s you know um it's a very different mindset than this kind of and i was still not like you know go sort out your head fix yourself get on with things um and instead there's this kind of sharing with this uh you know of um the existential givens basically in a really non-presumptive environment without any fixing agenda and i saw what my brain was doing and I saw, and I described like water. This is like, I am parched for, this is hundred percent what I need unadulterated. This is what's missing is that I need context. I need real stories from real people that have been through real life that are giving to me straight without an agenda. I just need to hear, I need to fill up myself with, um, with that, with those stories. Um, it was like, this is reality. I need reality. I need to ground into this. And I was getting so much benefit and I could just see it. I was just like, it was like a potluck. My little growing self was just gathering a little bit from this story, a little bit from that story, a little bit, you know, and just an amazing uh, support. Like I had a rough childhood and one of the ladies in the group had been in Auschwitz, um, which was a much rougher childhood. Um, and uh, she heard my story, which I was reluctant to share. I felt like I was being kind of whiny. And she said, she said, look, it's going to take you 30 years of hard work to get over that. And you're not there yet. And um, but it's worth it. And, um, and no one had told me that, but her saying it to me directly after hearing my story was such a gift 
because she had the world, a world of credibility. You know, I, I'm with her. She's with her friends. She's a wonderful person, a happy person, a trustworthy person. I knew her, you know, she knew my, you know, like that. I didn't need 10 years of therapy. I needed somebody that just became like this rock in me, you know, and that, that, and that's just the kind of extreme version of like lots of those happening that I didn't even need to be said to directly. I just needed to pick up on. So that was, but just that capability, I was like, wow, this is, we need to get rid of the middleman here in a way. There, there's just like, it was so obvious that, that we have so much lived tacit knowledge, lived wisdom on this planet, and we are not wiring it up right. We're not bringing people together right around it. So the original idea of Inquire was like, I want to just work on that problem. And for that, I need good questions to ask people because I really realized that like, I, I well, what I realized first, I just wanted to start these groups. But then I found out that there's a lot of social reasons why people, you know, it's hard when you're older to, you don't want to necessarily extend your social network. And so through interviewing a lot of different older people, um, when I started Inquire, I found out that they would be much more comfortable actually just with it kind of mediated, like I'll write it out and I can take gratitude, but I don't necessarily want to, they wanted levels of mediation. I'm like, oh, that's a software problem. I can do that. Let me just interview with the software and let me just see if I can get that spread around kind of thing. So that was the impetus to, um, to ask myself, and, and I guess this is where we're going to get into all of my background. My background is building really big giant systems and, and big models and AI systems, even not anymore, but it used to work on um, what would be called today explainable AI, which mm. is not this dangerous kind. It's basically heuristics. So systems to help people work on complex problems. And uh, and so I kind of went all whole hog on this of um, let me try to figure out what makes the right kind of question to try to draw that out of people, their lived experience. So the so the core of Inquire um, really was um, a multi-year um, curation and um, and and exploration, experimentation, and a lot of just um, yeah collecting of a certain quality of questions, testing, refining these questions and inquiries. And then seeing that they kind of they they weren't an infinite set. There was kind of there's a shape to them uh, emerging, and that um, that it was a manageable set. And so the core of Inquire is simply this kind of templated uh, inventory about a thousand forms. It turns out, but it's manageable, and ways of breaking down how to do ask a kind of question that elicits that lived experience without being presumptive. And it turns out it's just kind of hard to not insert the closedness to keep a question open. Um, is is a skill, and um, this just make, lowers the barrier on that. So basically, however you use Inquire, and we help people with this a lot, whether you're doing it alone with others, groups, as educators, um, it's almost like a way to build out, um, well, it is a way to um, build out around any topic, kind of help you access those forms. And then uh, further, we um, I really wanted to get at the core of what that group uh, dynamic was with the Quaker. Um, uh, because the other part of the story is that she stopped coming out to run the groups. She, she was flown out from Massachusetts to LA to run these groups. And uh, she actually remarried, which is really sweet. So <laughs> she wanted to spend the remaining years back in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And the ladies in the group, who many of them were lifelong therapists, brought all these different techniques to bear on the group. And it was kind of a, a you know, everyone's welcome to try out things. And so I had the same group of incredible women that had met for 15 years trying these different techniques and it completely broke down and fell apart it was really sad but like i realized oh we needed her format not it wasn't the people it was the format i mean it's probably both but the format special so i really um worked really hard to try to capture what i thought th those missing pieces were and articulate that in the software the software so a software also generates a group mode 
that invokes and gives instructions to people that anyone, even a child could run, uh, run a similar format um, that should bring out that same uh, space that kind of holds space for that to happen. So it's kind of a, a tandem thing. And so, so far, mainly we've made the tools available for people to use just solitaire on their own, because there's, you know, by definition, if you're doing solitude work, you know, this yeah. it's a, uh, yeah, it's could be an open companion for people that want to do solitude work um, without being presumptive. Um, and a lot of people need that. So we really kind of want to do that first, but we're just now starting to, um, we'll, over the following weeks and months, we'll be releasing more and more for group and specific applications, including education, which we'll, I'm sure we'll be sharing with you and be happy to talk about. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm tracking, uh, just to, to, to restate, um, what I understand is that that the core of what you're you're offering, what you're what you're sharing with the world is, are basically a, a set of of open-ended questions, right? These are prompts to to inquiry, right? As as you've stated, yeah, uh, to be used a little bit more than a question. Like you could think of it like a um, you could think of it more. The question's part of it, but it, in order to get people to that place, um. Yeah, so actually, this is interesting. Someone asked me recently for my definition of inquiry, and I thought, oh, that is actually a good question because we have a, it's a very specific idea now what this is. So you know, um, it's kind of like what you, what we touched on earlier is as a teacher, you need to do certain things to, you know, get people to that place where they can have an insight. And it turns out that um, there was a lot we could do engineering wise. To it's almost like language engine, very much language engineering, very careful choice of words to try to do that ideally. So just kind of like getting people in the mood and setting them up and creating space and then certain hints and suggestions and, and pulling in. And so there's a lot more to it than just kind of the question. Um, and that's that's really the um, more of the value add as well is that that's what we continue to test and iterate on, improve on as well is how well does that kind of create that opening so people are seeing instead of thinking. Right. There's a, there's a process, the structuring of yeah. the interaction there. That's, that's also part of it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so I and think so it's a collection of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So as I as I've shared um, your work and also you know, shared the link to to inquire with a few people here. Um, and you know we are here at Thoreau College. We're named after Henry David Thoreau, who famously <laughs> simplified, right? And uh, and also the the you know, what we were talking about earlier about the role and about the way that technology you know uh, has interacted with this some of these breakdowns around sense making. Um, one of the questions from several people was um, wouldn't a better wouldn't shouldn't we be striving to not be on a screen at all should we try to, right. to, to cut mm -hmm. the cut the cord and i guess i wonder what your, your answer to that is this a, a triage is this something that that is mm -hmm. given where we are is is something that that will be useful and helpful or is this something that in a in a in you know in an ideal future or in a in a scenario that we'd want to build intentionally that would have a tool like this in it yeah, this is a great segue into, I think we might be able to touch on all of our top ticket items you want to cover. <laughs> yeah, so this is a great segue into tech for good and tech for harm, I think, in general, is that uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't make the cutoff screen. Uh, I would think about, like, what are we, what are we doing with computers? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if we think about computers as artificial memories, um, one, one thing they do is serve as an artificial memory. Um, uh, that they extend so if you read you know again the art of memory francis it's we're we are in the habit of extending our memory all over the place and so she's arguing that like a lot of our systems we put on things and even our architecture and our art and we'd like to build these systems and neograms you've mentioned earlier like we like to build these things that maps you know we're we are 
a creature that extends our cognition by putting stuff out, writing, right? Putting stuff out there. Um, and so when you have a computer, you just have like a new way to do that. Um, so that's more dynamic. And so like in the 1300s, they concentric paper rings. We actually did an experiment where we tried to make it concentric paper rings and it just melted people's brain. Like, I don't think people can concentrate like that anymore, like this many years later. So we had to like, scale it back. We, we actually tried to re reproduce those cognitive experiments through the screen. Um, and that was a, a like, oh God, no, people, <laughs> they all had headaches after. <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, you have a, a technology for representing information different ways. And this is where I kind of get back to, like, I think um, the best way to consume a weather forecast is through a screen. It's best to, it's great if you can see the satellite image. Uh, I think everyone can kind of easily have their eye track. There's, here it's coming. There's that. There's the, the, uh, the you know, the, the Doppler and the, you know, you can kind of just see everything that's going on and you don't even need any math and you don't need any, you know, you can your brain can just do all that. Um, so, so I think that, um, so I think there's two parts to this question. So on the one hand, what we would love is that it'd be a perfect world. People kind of internalized, uh, there's a lot of things to internalize from interacting with this system that people get to, they, 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 it can, I think it does tend to break people out of, um, simple causal reductive thinking because there's so much polyadic nature to the, when you start working with these inquiries, you start seeing how things work and you start seeing how mind works and you start recognizing things that you, it starts disabusing you in a larger way of, uh, of some habits of mind. I think it can disabuse you of like a lot of reductive thinking. That's a huge source of pain and psychological, uh, stress, distress, um, including, you know, illness. Um, and so I think, I think there's like a meta learning you, you get, um, through working with it. Uh, and so once you're disabused of that, you've shed a lot of necessity perhaps for something like this. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, uh, my co-founder who, you know, I, I, I kind of put it out there, my co-founder who has used the, the system more than any, anyone on the planet and done it for years, um, still holds that even though he, he has these things committed to mind, it's still, it's still nice to have somebody, some, it's still something about someone else doing it. And I think it's a little bit of the, um, you playing something back in your head takes cognitive energy away from, you know, it's kind of a two part, it's like cutting your own hair, you know, it takes two attention systems to recall what you want to ask yourself, ask yourself the thing, then respond to the answer you're asking yourself. And that, and that lookup is kind of hard, especially for the open forms, because it's not the way memory normally works by association. So I think having inventory still has utility. I mean, a perfect world, we wouldn't need them. So, mm -hmm. but a whole lot of it is this undoing, untraining, just knowing that there's another way to look at it. And, and so, yeah, it's kind of like, in some ways we expect a giant bunch of the utility, the software maybe goes away, but this idea of first, the accessibility, the question forms doesn't go away. And then the second part is that some real magic happens um, in terms of speed, which might be really useful uh, in the decades to come if we start thinking this way in that um, the question's one part, but if it's not presumptive, you have to do your own work to go find exemplars from your memory. And that you have to search associations. So you might miss some because you're, you know, because that we're just stuck there. If you just no association right now, there's no association. Um, it, yeah, or and also it takes a long time to do that search and it's a lot of work. So that's another reason I think curating your own kind of model of meaning or something you say, these are the important things I want to recall regardless of context, these are the global things I want to keep top of mind, especially values, principles, you know, important relations. Like 
having that externalized can be a grounding thing. And it also can very rapidly lead to insights because insights happen on millisecond scale. You'll just see the pattern. The pattern recognition, when you don't have to go recall all that, can be very fast. So people can do very fast insight processes and sense making. Um, and that's that acceleration part. There's probably no way around that. Um, you know, so the the you know, the fallback would be to do all this in books. So if we we did at one point print out a book just so we have it of all our reforms, it's a 900 page book, just the just the templates. So you have to look them up, fill in the blank, and it still wouldn't be perfectly right. We still adjust some things, but it'd be mostly there. And then you have to have a separate model and you have to look up your model and you have to like kind of line it up and that all could be done, but you'd be hauling around. Like we really, we really were thinking like, okay, if you're gonna have this many books if they wanna do like a camp out, are people gonna do that? Or are they gonna really want their phone with an app? So what we're thinking we would, you know, ideally do maybe is like to try to either give people tablets where it's the only thing installed in an environment or allow an offline mode and kind of ensure they don't have internet or something like that. But the device is super handy for kind of facilitating all that. So that's, we've, yeah, we struggle with that, but there's, there's definitely a lot you can do with a computer uh, system that you can't do with books um, pragmatically and speed wise. So. Yeah, th that is a thought that occurred to me in, in, in thinking about the, this question that people were bringing was, you know, what I understood that you're working on. Um, I mean, books, great literature actually does this well and that's 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 and especially literature i would say you know fiction right if you're, if you're reading dostoevsky or you're reading dickens or you're reading shakespeare mm -hmm. you're not getting a list of answers to questions right you are right. these are prompts to insight right and you know and, and mm -hmm. even the even the bible people look for answers in the bible but the, actually if you, right. you just, it is a whole set of thought experiments and instigations to what would you do in this situation or what is what is right and wrong in this situation mm -hmm. I think that the mm -hmm. richness that comes out of cultures that are grounded in the, these great stories are often in that way they're not giving answers they are giving actually openings in a way yeah and I and if you listen to people talk about inquiry and so, you know like you're just if you have an ear forks they're always collecting these forms right so we're, <laughs> people have a like they they have a, a list of go-tos and I always had like a list of go-tos like I, I kind of stumble on something like I really like to ask myself this question now and you see that people do kind of just they have to kind of clumsily curate and kind of remember and write down or cheat mm -hmm. sheets or you know it's, they, they tend to curate um and I think that um the the problem with that which we I talk about in um uh if people are interested there's a stoa series I did that goes into this in gory detail it's a four part series but um what we call harm by omission that if you're really trying to make sense of something uh really painful I mean that's we don't generally want to make sense of things because your life's not working so that those usually go together anyway so when you're really trying to make sense of things um if your go-tos fail you and your therapist fails you and people aren't aware as they don't seem to be that there are like, not, not only there are many more forms of inquiry, a lot of these things are processes that link them together. And if you start counting how many processes are possible, it's um, virtually infinite, you know, if you're willing to keep going your own tree into linking these things together because the answer to one inquiry opens up the next inquiry and you're really more on this exploration, this journey to go get answers and follow your curiosity, which is trustworthy. You know, this is what you really should be on. So if you're always following a process, a ther therapeutic process, like 1400, that's not surprising to us. There should be uh, for a five-step process, there should be like, I tend to, I forget what it is, it's like 10 to the 17 or something. There should be like trillions for each person that like the combinatorics of how many processes you could make up with the, these open forms is huge, astronomical. So, you know, you, people try their go-to CBT or something 
or some other process and they're going to get the insights they're going to get and they're kind of going to run with it. And from our perspective, there's so many other places you could look. And so if people stop or give up, which they do to, to us, that's a real harm that we can address. And that's part, that, that moral push to try to at least make people aware of that and give them those tools for that, that subset of people that feel like they really need to make sense of something and the, the tools they're getting aren't working for them. Like it's a lot more work because to do it yourself, it is hard to do it yourself, but you can do it yourself. You can just keep searching for that way of looking at it that gets that aha that you need to kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, it's a beautiful word um, <laughs> and I'm blanking on it. Uh, I don't know. It, anyway, come to terms. There's a, it's a short, it's a synonym of come, come to terms with it. There, or our, our ability to come to terms with things is, is, uh, is a wonderful thing. And, and that, that's what we really often need. It wouldn't necessarily, and that's another thing too, is that we get kind of this solution focused mind and it's kind of almost back to the serenity prayer. We're looking for that kind of serenity of like to, to be able to um, come to terms with whatever we need that 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 alone can be the source of peace even if we can't relieve our material conditions yeah well, wonderful jill i think it's been we're well over an hour now and oh yeah <laughs> yes and i think we could talk for a lot longer there's a lot of there's a lot of things that your work touches on um but uh, um i want to thank you for for coming on to the podcast and maybe we can do it again sometime that sounds great thank you and i really appreciate all the the topics and the questions and um and uh yeah, if, if you think people need another dose of the AI and plastics, I'm not sure if we really got to the heart of that. I'd be happy to kind of do a round two where we really get into the nitty gritty of the topic of the year. <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe we'll do that. Thank or anything you. really, yeah.